Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. This morning we return to the little book of Jonah. In God's providence, I started it almost a year and a half ago. And one of the themes of Jonah is that despite our plans or desires, that God is in control. The book of Jonah, the Lord appoints a storm, a fish, a vine, as he directs Jonah's actions. Well, Lord willing, we will finish Jonah next week in the evening, sermon for chapter 3 and chapter 4. But right now, let's turn our attention to God's word as we read Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is God's word. Well, if we had to take a break in the book of Jonah, this is the place to do it. Because chapter 3 really starts the second part of the book. And if you remember the book of Jonah, we're really starting up back at a cliffhanger. What is Jonah going to do? The beginning is what I call the case of the disobedient prophet. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach against the evil of the city. And it was the capital or would be the capital of the Assyrian Empire soon. And this was astounding because, humanly speaking, this was most likely a death sentence to go to the city of your enemies. And worse, the Assyrians were the wicked enemies. They were bitter enemies of God's people. They were evil people who were hated by everyone, not just Israel. But God tells Jonah to go. And everywhere else in Scripture, you hear this formula. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, or so-and-so, and Elijah obeyed according to the word of the Lord. But that's not what Jonah does. He does the exact opposite. God says, go to Tarshish, or Nineveh, rather, five to six hundred miles east by land. Jonah goes to Tarshish, quite a bit further west by sea. Kids, did Jonah obey God? My parents gave me a definition of obedience, which I use for my children now. Obedience is doing something quickly, completely, and cheerfully. You do it right away, 
You, you don't cut the corners because because you don't want to do it. No, you, you do the whole job to the best of your abilities and, and you do it with a smile on your face. Even if it's not something that you really like, you, you, you decide that you're going to do it cheerfully. Well, Jonah does none of these things. He does the exact opposite. And so there's this tension in the book. God told Jonah to preach against Nineveh's evil. But now Jonah's done evil. He's disobeyed the Lord. So what will happen to God's prophet? And, and, and earlier in the book, the Lord pursues Jonah with both mercy and discipline. He sends the storm. He sends the fish. And in the fish, Jonah replies to God's mercy. He, he prays this beautiful prayer. He shouts what is the theme of the whole story. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He says many things that are true. And it seems that Jonah has a real desire to worship the Lord again. And yet, there are some concerning signs about this prayer. Jonah never repents or accepts responsibility for the fact that it was his disobedience that he's in the belly of the fish. There still seems to be a disconnect to God's mercy. Jonah desperately needs mercy, and yet he sees himself as better than the pagans around him in his prayer. And so the question builds throughout the book. Jonah has received mercy. Will his heart be changed? Will his heart be changed? And so chapter 3, where we read, presents a comparison between Jonah and Nineveh. It's some way similar to chapter 1, where there's a comparison between Jonah and the sailors. And kids, here's what I want you to see. We'll get to the adults point in a second. Um, but this is, this is easy for kids to get. Jonah obeyed on the outside. But we're going to see that Nineveh obeyed on the inside. And Jonah does obey, but there are, there are some big questions about the motivation of his heart. And we'll examine that some more in chapter 4. But today, God gives you these comparisons so that you can examine your own attitudes and motives. Am I obeying the Lord? Well, okay, that's if I am good, but, but am I obeying him fully and from the heart? So here's the point. Here's where we're going today. God's word to you. That obey from the start, but then check your heart. Obey from the start, but check your heart. Obedience is necessary, but obedience without repentance is a dangerous thing. You'll be just as lost if you continue that way. So let's look at those, the, 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 the two ideas in that statement. First of all, obey from the start. Well, why should you obey? Well, first of all, is that obedience is not a suggestion. It's not a suggestion. And today our world has an anti-authority allergy. And it's, it's interesting, as I've been in the army for over 20 years, you can actually see how the authority has changed. When I got in, the drill sergeant said, do it, and you did it. And, and, and now, you know, well, why should I do it? There's just there's there's this there's this flattening of authority. And in fact, there's some older soldiers who are getting out because they're saying just the young privates won't listen anymore. Um, now, some of that's cultural, but there is also a, a fact that we are becoming less and less respecting authority. Now, really, this is an anti God allergy because the great lies today. You can be God. And so who are you to tell me what to do if I'm if I'm God? So many today treat God's laws as optional. And one way that comes is like, you know, they say, I won't do it unless I'm sincere. I want to be sincere. And so I'll obey when I feel like it. But if I were to obey when I didn't want to, well, that would be hypocritical. If there's anything that you don't want to be today, it's hypocritical. One mother put it this way on social media. She says, I'm not going to require my child to be polite unless they're sincere about it. 
I'm not going to make them say please and thank you unless they want to, because that would not be sincere, right? It's, it's optional. And some people also view God's laws as if they're just suggestions, like, like health suggestions. You know, well, I know it would probably be good for me to cut out some sweets and, and exercise 30 minutes for a couple of days a week, but, you know, it's not inherently wrong if I don't do that all the time. Well, as you've probably heard, God did not give Moses the Ten Suggestions. He gave him the Ten Commandments. And obedience is not an option. And really, what we see here is that disobedience is the hard way. Now, when I was in basic training, we would sing cadences. The sergeant would sing a line and we'd sing it back. And I'm going to sing you just a a short bit of a cadence, not going to ask you to sing it back, that my drill sergeants would sing to us. And it would go like this. Well, just the other day I heard a drill sergeant saying, If you want to be a soldier, you got to do it my way. My way or the highway. My way or the highway. My way's the easy way, your way's the hard way. (laughs) You get what he's saying there? The Lord, in effect, says something similar to Jonah. If you are reading Jonah straight through, you'll realize that the beginning of chapter 3 sounds familiar. Haven't we been here already? You go to chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against me, against it, for their evil has come up before me. And then then we read in chapter 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out it the message I tell you. And so you say, haven't we been here already? Well, does God say to Jonah, oh, well, Jonah, you know, you do you. You be true to yourself. I want to make sure you're sincere before you obey. No. God pursues Jonah with a hurricane and a sea monster. He requires obedience from his people. And in chapter 3, Jonah says, okay, I get it, I get it, my way is the hard way. And he goes to Nineveh. You know, as I studied this book, I thought, Jonah, if if you had just obeyed God from the beginning and with a good attitude, we could have another Obadiah on our hands. Now, that's an obscure minor prophet reference, but if you know your minor prophets, Obadiah is a chapter with, a book with one chapter. One chapter. It could be chapter 3. Jonah goes, he preaches, Nineveh repents, salvation belongs to the Lord. But no, we have four. It's because God requires obedience. And disobedience is harder. And if you are God's child, God in his mercy may not allow you to continue in, your, his dis, in disobedience. He, he might discipline you so that you obey. Think about that the next time you're tempted to obey God's law. And so disobedience or obedience is, is not optional. But here's another reason you should obey from the start. Because you're part of God's family. Now, it's not a major theme of Jonah, but, but there's a special relationship that, that God has with his people Israel. Jonah does reference this in Jonah 1.9 when the sailors ask him who you are. And he says, I am a Hebrew. I feel the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven. This God had entered into a special bond with his people, starting with Abraham. He promised to be their God and their people. And one way to look at this covenant bond is a family relationship. God made the people of Israel his children. 
This is a wonderful privilege. You know, you think about this. They, they did nothing to earn this. Kids, how many of you said before you're born, you know, I really want to go into that family? How many of you made that choice? Well, you can't. You don't have a choice. You're brought into the family that you are. And, and God has brought you into his family by faith in Jesus. And so you, you understand that I don't obey so that God will accept me or love me more. He's already done that. And the Lord makes this very clear to his people in the Old Testament, too. In, in Exodus 20, where, where God is giving the Ten Commandments, the summary of his moral law and, and, and summary of his covenant with his people in the Old Testament, he says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slaves. He says, this is what I have done before he says, this is how you respond in obedience. And, and so what God is saying here is just as children should obey their parents, so Israel should love and obey the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, God says this through Moses as he's reiterating this. He says, and listen to the obedience and the love that goes on here in this. I'm going to read a few verses. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the day of your life, that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your prom- fathers, have promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You see, you obey God because you love him, because you've been brought into his family. That was, that was what Moses said to Israel. The same is true for us. King Jesus says in, in John 14, verses 15 and 16, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. That sounds similar to Deuteronomy, doesn't it? Loving and keeping his commandments. But, but Jesus is clear this isn't just a go out and try harder. He sends the Spirit, the Helper, to give you the ability to grow in obedience. And so remember, as, as children of God, obedience is, is not only a duty, but it's a delight. It shows your special relationship that you have with the Father and it draws you closer to him. And as your Father... He wants to bring you a blessing. That's the third reason why we should obey right away. Obedience brings blessing in this life. Why does God command you to obey him? Because he wants your good. If You heard what he said in Deuteronomy, that your life will be long, that you'll be blessed in the land. God is not saying, obey me because I'm on a power trip. And I want to introduce a whole lot of arbitrary laws into your life to make you miserable. That's not what he's saying. No, he wants your good. Is it a surprise that the creator of this world knows what is best for you? you know, let's just look at example, one example of God's laws. Look at, let's look at marriage for a minute. Um, marriage has been under fire by the cultural elites for the last century in our country. They say, well, you know, it's outdated, it's restrictive, it's, it's patriarchal, marriage is a bad deal for women. You know, I just listened to an interview with the evangelist Glenn Scrivener who talked with a feminist author... Louise Perry, she's definitely not a Christian, but she wrote a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. 
case against the sexual revolution. And, and she said that in her findings, the best deal for women is monogamous marriage. That's what's best. Why? He says, because, well, the research backs it up. There's no way of getting around it. Now, I applaud her for taking an unpopular stance. But I thought, well, why wait for the research? You know, Christians have known this because God has commanded it from the beginning. And how many lives have been ruined, especially among the poor and the minorities in the inner city, that because people have been told just marriage is a piece of paper. You know, just, just do whatever you want. Make it up as you go along. Only to find out the devastation it causes. See, God's laws bring blessing. In the normal circumstances of life, when you obey God, you will be blessed. Now, now there's exceptions because of the brokenness of the world, but, but you know, that's why there's the book of Proverbs. Do you want to be successful? Generally, here's how it works. Fear God and keep his commandments. Well, obedience not only brings you prosperity, but it trains your heart. It's another blessing. Now, God uses his law to shape your love for him. Now, if you don't feel like obeying God, the worst thing that you can do is wait till you feel like it. Now you'll just drift further and further. That's, that's not the way feelings work. Often your feelings are shaped by your actions. Your heart is shaped by your hands. Kids, have you ever experienced a time when your parents have asked you to do something and at first you don't want to? You know, and, and then you grumble a little bit, but you start doing because you have to. And after a while, you realize, oh, this isn't so bad. And by the end, you're like, well, I probably wouldn't have started this, but I'm kind of glad I did it. Uh, I remember a time like this when I was either late high school or early college. I'd just gotten my driver's license, and uh, my parents' car mechanic was 30 minutes away because we moved a bit, but we still liked the mechanic, and we, we had a lot of um, life in that area anyway. And, and so we dropped a car off, and then we came back, and, then I, and they realized that they had left some medication for the, the, the men that my parents cared for at the time in the car that we dropped off. And they said, Andrew, you know, you just got your license. Could you go get those meds? I didn't want to get the meds. You know, it's like, I, I didn't forget it. It's like, all right, I'm going I'm to obey. I'm going to do that. And um, by the way, this is what happens when you get your license, young people. You start doing errands for your parents. Um, but as I was going, I thought, you know, how much has my, my dad cared for me? Um, how much has he served me? Um, and as I thought about it more and how much I loved him, and maybe by the time on the way back, I was actually grateful that, you know, this is a way that I can care for dad. This is a way I can respond in love to him. And actually by obeying, my heart was changed. Let's put a finer point on this application. It's pretty simple. But let's, let's, let's just hang out here a little bit. So obviously, God calls you to obey. Obey the Lord from the start. And so I'll ask you today, is there a way that you are not obeying God's law? I'm not saying you keep his law perfectly. You can't. Or that you're doing every good thing that you could be doing. But are there clear commands that you are violating? Is there a habit of sin in your life and you say, I know God says this, but I'm going to do this. Are you ignoring the conviction of the Holy Spirit in that matter? You know, God gives us very clear commands that we are to be devoted to him 
right? Whether that's our sexuality or the rest of our lives, even starting with our, our finances, tithing to the Lord, as we tend here in worship, as we repent of our sins, as, as within our powers we reach out and reconcile with other people. The Lord's bringing up a sin in your heart. Repent. And turn to Jesus and ask him for the power to step out and obey and to begin to walk in obedience. As I was wrestling with this text this week, I was just, I was just doing something and realizing, you know, here is a way, it's minor, but here is a way that I am, I am not fully obeying the Lord. And so I've asked him, Lord, would you, would you help me to walk in this way, in a way that honors you? And so you must obey. This is, this is very simple. It's not always easy, but I say cry out for the grace to obey. Don't do things the hard way. Experience the blessings of your life. Now, now here's an even finer application, a more specific one. This is where it gets really real. Uh, speak to parents today. Parents, you're to train your kids to obey. God requires outward obedience from Jonah. And you must, too, from your kids. Now, we're not going to read it, but the passage that I read about Deuteronomy and the law and the love, right after it says, And these things shall be on your heart, and you shall speak of them to your children when you walk and you talk as you go by. It's that discipleship of training your children in, in following God. Now, there's a crisis of obedience today in parenting in our country, where kids don't obey their parents. If anything, it seems more like parents obey their children, which, which God says is backwards. And, you know, many people say to me, I could never have kids. They're just, they're so unruly. They're so uncontrollable. Uh, now, now, for the record, in my short experience of being a parent, children, having children is not easy. It's worth it. Uh, and people tell me only it gets harder. I've only been five years into there, so I'm a rookie. But I can tell you that you can train your kids. I, I can experience that from my own life and from the way my parents raised me. If you just consider these statements, you know, my, my little Bobby won't eat his vegetables. My, my teenager won't take out the trash. My girls won't respect me. You know, if I was visiting or talking with someone in the congregation or Christian, I'd ask the parents gently, well, whose fault is that? Who, whose responsibility? Ultimately, it's the parents. It's yours. God has given you authority over your children and requires you to teach them to respect authority. This is a humbling thing. You're a fellow sinner. You're being parented by God. You will make wrong choices as you discipline. I just, I just apologized to one of my children this week because I, I misunderstood the intent and, and so it came off wrong. But not disciplining your children is, is far worse. You must discipline your children when, when you give them reasonable commands. And that's no reasonable. You're not exacerbating. You're not micromanaging. You're not overbearing. But let me just give you some examples. So food. I'll just tell you how it goes in the Barshanger household. Or, you know, we have young kids, and sometimes they don't like to eat their food. Now, now we, we do take, you know, don't exasperate your children. So Brussels sprouts and asparagus, the adult foods like that are off the table. You don't have to eat those. You can try them and fine. But everyone else gets a little no thank you helping. Um, and, and, you, and you have to eat your no thank you helpings before you get more of what you really want. And, and it just, it's sometimes, there's, there's times when one of them just says, eh, I'm not going to eat it. So what do you say? Oh, oh well, I'm sorry, better luck next time. I really want you to be sincere before you eat your broccoli. No, no, that's not how it goes. It says, okay, son, daughter, here's how it's going to work. You're going to sit here, 
until you eat your broccoli. If you get up, you will get a spanking. If you have the stubbornness to sit here till you go to bed, we will refrigerate said broccoli. You will go to bed. Tomorrow morning, we will warm up the broccoli for you, and you will resume your place in the chair. This can take 15 minutes, or it can take 15 hours. But Daddy keeps his word, and you will eat your broccoli. And so you can say, son, don't go the hard way. Daughter, don't go the hard way. Do the easy way, right? I mean, it's the same thing. You will not yell or scream in anger when your parents say, no, these are all toddler things I know. But, you know, you may be disappointed. You may cry softly to yourself and work it out. But you will not rage at the world or you will get a spanking. That's how it works. You think about teenagers. My teenager won't take out the trash. It's like, well, whose house is it? Who's, who's closed? Who's furniture? And, and again, you know, you can reason as they get older and say, son, daughter, you're part of the family and we need you to be part of the team. But if that doesn't work, you say, okay, well, there's some privileges that you're going to lose. You know, you're going to lose your phone. You're going to lose your, your drives with your friends. And ultimately, if you refuse and you can't learn, and I'll help you to make, um, you know, adjustments on your calendar. But if you can't do this, then, you know, you will have a bed and a chair and a desk in your room with your school books. And that's where you will be until you learn how to take out the trash. It's that simple. Now, kids, some of you are thinking, Pastor Andrew, you sound like a mean man. The carrots, your parents are loving when they require you to listen. When, when our, one of our sons was very young, um, you know, sometimes we would, we would spank him if it was appropriate. But sometimes we would just put him in his crib and let it cry it out. And we called it baby jail. And we said, son, we're putting you in baby jail now so that you don't have to go to adult jail when you grow up. See, if you don't learn now to obey, you will reap the consequences later. And, and even ultimately, will you learn to respect authority and most importantly, God's authority? And so you must require outward obedience, parents. Right? Now, parenting is much more than discipline. You even see that in Jonah. Right? You, your interactions with kids should be far more than discipline. If that's it, you'll drive them away. You should love and encourage them far more than you discipline them. However, it must include it. You can't control your kids. You can't control their actions, certainly not their heart. But you can enforce standards which say, this is the way. This is the easy way. Follow in it. And so for all of us, not just children, obey from the start. But outward obedience is not enough. Jonah obeys. He obeys according to the word of the Lord. And yet chapter 3 really doesn't answer the questions that chapter 1 and 2 raise. Will Jonah be changed by the mercy he's experienced? He, he obeys, but from the limited story we have, it seems pretty lackluster. He preaches the world's shortest sermon. Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And in Hebrew, it's only five words. So we don't know what he said. It was probably a summary. He probably said more. But what, it, what we do sound, it looks like it's Jonah. What he have? It looks like Jonah's going through the motions. Get in, preach, get out. And in fact, chapter 4 will confirm this suspicion. Now, was it better for Jonah to obey in chapter 3 rather than there to be a few more chapters in the book until he obeyed? Yes. But he also shows that you can obey in your heart might not be changed. Not drawn to love God and to be more like him. And so that brings us to our second point, to be shorter. But obey from the start, but check your heart. 
I want you first to see the heart of God here. Notice how God shows his heart of mercy and compassion to Nineveh. In Jonah 3, 3, it describes it as an exceedingly large city. Now, literally translated, this would be a city to or a city for God. It's possible that in the Hebrew it could be just used as a superlative, like the biggest, like a God-sized city. But there are many commentators, and I agree, who think that this wording is in some ways showing the Lord's care for this great city. In other words, this is a city that matters to God. After all, it was very large. It says a three days journey. It's uncertain exactly what that phrase meant. It could mean that it took three days to walk around Nineveh and all its suburbs. It could mean that it's just so big that you have to spend three days to really get it. Like, who, who would want to visit New York City for a day if you've never been there? It's a three-day visit. That maybe means that. But it has something to do with its size and that it's big. And here you see God shoves Jonah out of his comfort zone from his home and he sends him to this evil pagan city who is full of people. Now, and let's be honest, they are evil. That, that's clear throughout the book. Now, these are not the, the righteous savages who just haven't happened to hear the gospel. There, there are actually no such people like that. All people, uh, apart from God's holiness, are they're, they're evil and fall short of his glory. And yet God in his mercy, see his heart here? He withholds judgment. You know, if God just wanted to judge Nineveh, he wouldn't have sent Jonah in the first place. He just would have been done and over with it. But he cares for this city of wicked people. He's, he's reaching out to it. He's running towards it. And this is unthinkable to Jonah. That, that Yahweh, the covenant Lord of Israel, would extend his grace and mercy to those outside his people. How can he do that? Showing his mercy to, to miserable, evil, pagan sinners. And that's exactly what happens here. God sends Jonah. Jonah preaches judgment. And Nineveh repents. And Nineveh's heart, in some way, in obedience and repentance, follow God's heart, responds to his mercy. You see that they call for a fast. And what's a fast? It's a time for repentance, for prayer. It's a state of humility where you acknowledge your weakness and limitation. You're expressing helplessness and dependence. And when the king of Nineveh, he hears this, he confirms the fast and makes this royal decree. Right? No, no water, no drinking. This is extreme. Put on, put on sackcloth. Right? The, the, the Hebrew word sackcloth is actually sack. I, I don't think we get our word sack from it. It just means a, a garment of, of cheap and coarse and uncomfortable hair. It reminds you of, of your position of humility. And cry out to God. And then turn. This word turn is a new idea in the book of Jonah. Stop the wrong you are doing and turn. And it happens four times in rapid succession in verses 8 through 10. They turn, God sees that they turn, and so he turns from the judgment that he was going to bring. We'll look more at their heart. What's more, he confesses his sin. He doesn't say, well, I'm just a bad person. He names it. He lists their sin as evil. He even expounds it as wicked ways. This is a far cry from the righteous prayer of Jonah, which never acknowledges his own sin in his prayer. And then in his humility, the king places the city in the Lord's hands. Who knows? Maybe the Lord will turn and relent and we will not perish. And so the whole city cries out to the Lord. They're on the edge of their seats. Will God relent from this disaster he promised? Of course, we know. But it may have been a surprise to them. The Lord relents. He announces justice. But in his patience, He withholds it when he sees their repentance. 
Now, do you see the elements of true obedience here? They admit their sin, they, they want to change, they obey, they put away their wicked ways. And they understand that their actions don't guarantee, they don't earn anything, any favor from the Lord, but they humbly place their fates in his hands. Well, a common question is this. The Lord relents, but what kind of deliverance is this? Now, it's clearly a physical salvation. God relents from his destruction. But is it more than that? I've always wondered that. Did the Ninevites become Israelites? What, what, you know, what, to what extent? Well, way back, a long time ago, I argued that you could make a, a decent case that the pagan sailors in chapter 1 truly came to know Yahweh. Jonah 1 uses language of true Israelites in their worship. They, they fear the Lord. They bow vows. They offer sacrifices. Uh, only the Lord knows. But it is possible upon completing their voyage, they're right near Israel, they made good their vows and, and sought the God of Israel. Well, here it's less clear. The Ninevites do turn from their sins. They, they obey, they believe God, verse 5. But there's also no mention of them forsaking their gods in the city or worshiping the God of Israel. I, I like how one commentator put it. It's clear that Nineveh turned from her sins, but it's unclear whether she turned to the Lord. But in fact, um, though they are an example of repentance, they're, they're still missing, at least explicitly, this important element of true obedience, a relationship with God. And, and so I would just say it's hard to say. There were certainly limits to their repentance. A hundred years later, Nineveh will be destroyed and denounced as a wicked city. Uh, a lot can happen in a hundred years. Just look at America. And yet, here's what we do know. Nineveh was used as an example of repentance by Jesus himself in his teaching. If you look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 and following. You know, when Jesus is looking for an example, he offers Nineveh as proof of someone who seeks the Lord and receives forgiveness. I mean, Nineveh is an example of all who would turn and repent and receive mercy from the Lord. So check your hearts. And so as we close today, I want to ask you, where are you? you know, first, I want to speak to people who you know you are outside the people of God. You are, you are like the pagans, you are like the, the sailors, Nineveh, and you know you don't belong to God's people. You might be here today for whatever reason, and you're thinking, yeah, uh, God wouldn't want anything to do with me. I'm hopeless, I'm worthless, I'm used up. I'm on, if I'm honest, I'm a rebel, and I deserve judgment. And, I, and here's some good news for you. In the deepest sense, that's all true. That's where you are. That's where we all are, apart from Christ. But you know what? Nineveh shows that there is hope. One thing this means is that God can save anybody. If he extends mercy to Nineveh, if he sent his prophet to proclaim judgment, which led to salvation, how much more will the God in the flesh who came down, who ate and drank with sinners, accept you if you turn and cry out in faith? If this is you today, I ask you, ask you, repent and turn from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. But that's Nineveh. And you'd think the story would be over, but there's still another chapter to go. God still has some unfinished business. Just who does God desire to save in this book? What's well, more than Nineveh? It's Jonah, too. Jonah, who is the righteous Israelite, who, who outwardly lives within the covenant. And the question is, will Jonah's heart be changed? And so I ask you who are within the church, 
Are you like Jonah? As you look at your heart, are, you know, are you obeying, but you're not happy about it? You're grumbling under your breath instead of joy. God's law brings you frustration and misery. Once again, Nineveh is a reminder of God's mercy and how to receive it. Here's, a, I think, a helpful way one commentator said. Nineveh is used as a foil to win the final salvation of Jonah. If, like the Ninevites, he will but repent and change his thinking about the objective of divine mercy. You know, the, 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 the sadness is that Jonah obeys on the outside. And in the act of obedience, he misses the very message that he's preaching to Nineveh. He preaches repentance, but doesn't practice it. He himself refuses to respond to God's mercy. Now, now we'll see in chapter 4, next evening, how God patiently responds to Jonah. But for those of you in the church, here's the question for you to consider. As you obey, as you must, is God your boss or your father? See your boss or your father. You know, you think, think about the best working relationship you could have. It's, it's, it's someone you'd like to work for the rest of your life. I say, this, this person helps me exceed to my full potential. I, I love working for them. I, I'm growing. I'm being mentored by them. I feel respected and empowered. It's a great work environment. At the end of the day, no matter how much you like, love your boss, you're working for pay. It's this for that. I do this for you, and you do that for me. It's great if we can make it as mutually agreeable as possible, but I'm doing this so that you give me that. Is God your boss? God, I'm obeying you, so you give me what, what I want. Or is it more, is he your father? Is it a covenant relationship? Not this for that, but this because of that. Father, you've given yourself for me. You've come down in the person of Jesus. You've sacrificed for me. And so because I'm in your family, I serve you because I love you. Now, we all fall short in our obedience to the side of glory. But when you do, turn. Cry out to God. Ask him to change your heart as you obey and watch him do his work in your life. People of God, obey from the start. Check your heart. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our great high priest who has obeyed perfectly. And as you call us into deeper and deeper sanctification growing in you, would we have the faith to obey when it's simple, but it's not easy? Would you help us to look to you, the author and finisher of our faith, and to realize that this is best. This is not hard, but it's the easy way. Would you give us joy as we work out our obedience this week? We pray this in your name. Amen.